I desire that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider this text, this is a tough text for our modern ears. Lord, this, uh, this is hard for us to hear in our culture. And what I pray, God, is that this morning You would give us faith to put ourselves underneath the Word and not above it. Lord, I pray that, that You would use Your Word to teach us about our culture. And Lord, keep us, prevent us from trying to use our culture to teach us about the Word. Lord, I pray that You would use the Word this morning to continue to grow and create Your church. We never invented the Word of God. But the Word of God invented, created, is creating, is changing us. And so, Father, I pray for help. I pray for help as I present this, that You would give me courage to chain myself to the text and to believe it. And Lord, that You would give me faith that You will work in the hearts of Your people to hear it. And that we will be changed. In Your name we pray. Amen. Well, um, as I'm reading the text, if you're reading along with me, uh, there's going to be a certain grip that it's going to grab onto your ears in a modern context. Uh, and, uh, and that's good. That means you read it. Um, I'll, I'll tell you that as I began uh, the path towards ministry and, and the Lord was calling me towards uh, ministry and in particular preaching, it was what to do with a passage like this that really settled in my mind uh, uh, what stance I would take as a preacher of the Word of God. And that is, you got to make a decision pretty early on. Do you believe every word in this? Or do you not? And once you... And so I began to look. And the one major conclusion I drew is once you step away from the text with one word, you have stepped on a slippery slope and you have no place to turn around. At that point, you begin picking and choosing what in the Scriptures you like and that which you don't like. And that's a very dangerous game. And it was text like this that made me say, I want to preach 
but I want to preach, and I like the way, and I can't remember which reformer said this, I want to preach by chaining myself to the text and saying, where it goes, I'll go. Where it doesn't, I won't. And I'll believe. So this is one of those texts this morning. As you walk through the book of 1 Timothy, I don't want us to water it down. I want us to take it for what it says. But I beg that it will not say anything more than what it says either. Say everything that it says, but nothing more. So first, let's look at, uh, at, at verse 8. So again, the title of it is Men, Women, and God's Plan for the Church. Uh, if you want a longer one, it would be manhood, womanhood, and God's plan for the church. And then this uh, first point that we'll look at together is in verse 8. It's a three-pointer. Uh, Paul made that up. I didn't. Uh, you'll see it's very plain that he has three main points. He says here, I desire then, or yours might start with likewise, um, so what we know is that what Paul is saying is connecting us back to what he was saying before, which is a good thing. And so remember last week we looked at what does what should be the uh, uh, role of the church in public prayer. And we said one of the roles of the church in public prayer is praying for those who are not believers and in particular praying for those who are in authority. Because God is a God who radically saves all. Therefore, we should be a, 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 a people who are willing to pray among all. Um, so that, that was last week. So this week, we come in and say, okay, that's what we're supposed to be praying. That's how we're supposed to con- conduct our matter of business in prayer then what type of boundaries should there be? And that's where the connection is. It's an issue of boundaries. He's going to give us boundaries for men, what's acceptable and unacceptable. That's verse 8. And then He's going to spend the rest of the time giving us boundaries for what's acceptable and unacceptable for women. Verse 8, I desire then that in every place, that's every place, that men should pray And then he tells us how. Lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So he's asking that in the role of public worship, that that men should conduct themselves in prayerfulness. Now please do not misunderstand. This is not talking about just a certain office or a certain position. It's not like he's saying, I just want the pastors doing this. He has words for that. And believe me, in, in, in chapter 3, he'll point out those things. He's actually saying all men. He wants every man in public worship to come to worship in a spirit of prayerfulness. They should be praying. All men everywhere praying. And then he gives us two uh, characteristics One is they should be lifting holy hands. It's hard to not imagine him uh, uh, not borrowing here from Psalm 24, um, a very uh, uh, popular song in the the Jewish pattern of worship. When When it's written in Psalm 24, "...and who shall stand in his holy place, he who has clean hands and a pure heart..." who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So who can stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. 
Seems like Paul is borrowing there to say what should be the attitude of men in worship. It should be a men, it should be of men who are prayerful and who come with pure hands, not defiled themselves with the culture around them in its sinfulness. So they should come prayerfully, they should come with holiness. And then he goes on and he says the second characteristic they should come without anger. Or quarreling. They should come with love and with peace. So in the public worship of the people, he says, I don't want the men fighting. I don't want them quarrelsome. I don't want them angry. No, no, no. I want them to come prayerful. I want them to come holy. And I want them to come loving. And I want them to come peacefully. Now just stop and picture... A church if where all the men bring themselves into worship and you look at it and you say, when I see them, I think prayerful. I think love and peace and purity. That's a beautiful picture. That's exactly what Paul is asking for. That's exactly what he's hoping for. I think what you'll see though is that what that really is, is it's a people, it's a, it's a group of men who are submissive to God. That's what a spirit of prayerfulness does. Prayerfulness, the greatest thing about prayerfulness is not the words that we pray or the amount of time that we spend doing it. It is the attitude of the heart that it brings about. When we spend time in prayer, it is us saying... I need help. I need help. I don't have this on my own. I need help. It's submitting ourselves to the authority of God. And so he starts out by saying men should come prayerfully in submission. Now this is a big deal because the entire passage is about submission to God when it's all said and done. This entire passage. So you could sum up the passage with two main points. You should be a praying people. And in particular praying about those who are not believers. And you should be a submissive people when you come in to worship. So that's point one. Point one, the proper posture of men in the church is submissiveness in prayer. Okay, point number two. This is verse 9. It says this. Finding my place. Likewise. So we already begin with likewise. I think that's helpful because it tells us he's carrying the same thought. Submissive men, and where do you think he's going? Submissive women. Men should be submissive and women should be submissive when they come into worship. Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. So he's already dealt with the men and now he's going to focus his attention with the women. And the first thing he's going to deal with before he deals with anything else is how should they come and dress? How should they 
dress. And what he says, just so we don't get lost in the details here, because there's going to be some details, what he says is that they should come with modesty and self-control. Come with modesty and self-control. That is an issue of the heart. It is an issue of attitude. That is a timeless truth from the Word of God right here to us today that is irrespective of culture. No matter what the culture looks like around us, when the church gathers, no matter what they gather in the year 50 A.D. or if they gather in the year 2013 A.D., when women come into worship, they should dress modestly, Paul says, the Word of God says, and their dress should, you should look at their dress and think they are exercising self-control. That is a timeless principle. Now, after giving us the timeless principle, he now is going to deal with the specific and he's going to go into what's happening there in Ephesus. So there he says, so he tells them the principle, modesty and self-control. And then to give them a little bit more detail so that there's no confusion, he's going to say, now here's what is not modesty and self-control for you all in Ephesus. Here we go. Not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. So there was a problem in Ephesus where the women were coming, many of them were coming with very, very, very expensive clothes on. Now, some of these clothes were so expensive that it was said it would take somewhere between 20 and 30 years of a salary to buy the dress. Um, I, I, I can't fathom that. Um, uh, I just cannot fathom that. I'm sure that there's clothes, there are clothes out there that cost that much. I've never seen those. And, and I pray that myself and my wife never do see those. But um, anyway, uh, this was a problem. So they're coming with this, I mean, just incredibly ornate dress. Well, what's the point? Why do you walk into public worship with this just incredibly ornate dress on? So that people will look at it and go, that cost a whole lot of money. They must be really rich. And Paul says, stop it. Stop it. Don't do that. Well, and another problem, um, they also apparently were braiding their hair with gold strings and filling it with pearls. Um, so I don't know how you do this, um, but they did. Uh, and they were, they were taking into their hair, braiding it in such a fancy way with all this jewelry that it was said that their head could hold years and years worth of salaries um, just on their head. Um, and so Paul said, you know, they're walking in with these expensive gowns on with, I mean, thousands of dollars uh, in their in uh, their hair braided in, and he is saying, stop it. Stop it. Don't do that. Well, what was the problem? The problem was they were completely missing what worship is about. We come to worship. Just remember, it's actually not as hard as we make it sound. We come to worship because we think God is so incredible that He is worthy of us sitting around and talking about Him, singing about Him, 
praying to Him and hearing what He thinks about our lives. And we think He's so incredible, we should do that on a weekly basis. That's what worship, when it's all boiled down, is. You just think He's incredible. So you come. And we have this in common as a church. I mean, that's why we gather together. We actually all together all believe, yeah, He's incredible. That's why we're here. And Paul says, it is just foolish. If you come here thinking He's incredible and now all the attention that's supposed to be on Him is is now on you. That's foolishness. It completely diverts the the whole equation. And so he says, stop it. This is not about you. It is about Him. Well, I want to pause because this, and I don't, I really don't, I'm, I'm really trying to fight uh, dealing with all the arguments around these passages. These passages are heavily debated um, uh, among folks. Uh, I, I think it's an incredibly plain read of what's going on. But I want to at least let you know what some folks say so that you, if you hear that, you know that why those arguments are somewhat silly. Here is a common argument about this passage. Here's what is commonly said. Basically, something on the lines of this. Well, if you're going to take this verse and this passage literally, then you have to take all of it literally. And therefore, you'd better not allow any braided hair, gold, or pearls in the church. If you're going to take it literally, you better take it all literally. It says no braided hair or gold, so you better get it out. Or another way to put it, so if you ignore any specifics described in these verses, you are free to ignore the whole rest of the verse, or all the verses. Are they correct? I hope you already tell the way I've interpreted it. No. (laughs) It's an issue of right principle, wrong application. The principle's right. Once you say, I'm going to interpret the Scriptures literally then you don't get to pick and choose which ones you're going to interpret literally or not. You've got to interpret all of them literally. And so that's why we believe in an inerrant Word of God that we believe should be interpreted literally. The question though is, when you're dealing with literature and you literally interpret it, how do you apply what it's saying? So let me give you a good example of this. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus says, verse 29, If someone takes your cloak, do not withhold your tunic. Now, I think that that should be read literally. That Jesus, what He says, He really means, and we we should listen to that. It would be foolish though, wouldn't it? For me to say, good news is I really don't need to worry about what he's saying here because I don't really wear a tunic and a cloak and therefore I'm good to go. I can move on to the next verse. No. You would look at that and go, come on, silly rabbit. You have a coat and a shirt. So if someone takes your shirt, then you let them, or takes your coat, you let them have your shirt. Or you would say, actually, Tim, think a little bit more than that. You can use your brain. What is Jesus after here? He is after the fact that you should not respond with anger just when, and, and go eye for eye with a person. You should be forgiving beyond measure, right? That's taking it literally. Well, the exact same thing here. What we look at is we say, we say, yes. We don't really have the issue of people wearing uh, braided hair with tons of gold and pearls. I haven't dealt with that as a pastor. I know I'm young in my pastoral life, uh, but I don't know many pastors and I have not seen many journal articles written lately about how to deal with pearls and and gold and braided hair. Um, 
So, no, yeah, that's not something to deal with. But good gracious, dress in public worship is an issue for any pastor. Come on. Believe me, that one's been dealt with. And I'm so thankful that the Word of God actually has something to say about it. It says women are to dress modestly and with self-control. That is the timeless principle. So yes, the culture shifts, but the Word of God does not. Now, let's not lose a forest for the trees. Let's keep going to verse 10 because he deals, he continues with this same point. And he says, so he already told us in verse 9 what they, how they should not dress. Uh, now he says, but they should wear, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. He said, I'll tell you what I want you to wear. If there's a store called Good Works, I want you to shop there often. I want you to put on your humility, your love, your service, your giving. I want you to put those on and be adorned with them when you come into public worship. And that will be a beautiful sight unto your Savior. That's what I want you to put on. Young women, I ask that you heed these verses. If you can etch them on your closet doors, etch them on your closet doors. What do you want to wear? Good works. I know that young ladies spend a lot of time thinking about what they are going to wear because I was a young man and I spent a long time thinking about what I was going to wear. And I beg that we encourage young people to be people who say, I know what I want to wear. I want to wear good works. And let me just tell you, you will save yourself a lot of pain. Your culture around you is trying to sell you the lie that how you dress means nothing about your character. It's a devilish lie. It's not true. Here's the deal. This isn't in the text. It's just a little extra. If you dress in such a way that is not with modesty and self-control, you will attract a young man who doesn't give a rip about modesty and self-control. But if you dress with good works, by the grace of God, you will attract a man who cares about good works. And let me tell you, you will save yourself decades of pain by being married to a man who cares about good works and not married to a foolish man who cares nothing about good works and doesn't care about self-control. That's just throwing it out there. I'm not going to charge you any extra for it. Um, I mean, if you want to pay extra, I'll take it. But anyway, alright. So that's point number two. Um, point number one, men are to be submissive in prayerfulness. Point number two, women are to dress modestly and with self-control. And then we get to point number three. Where Paul spends most of his time. Verse um, 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now we're going to spend some time here. This is definitely hotly debated um, and hotly misunderstood, unfortunately. 
This text is very difficult for our modern ears. Let me read it one more time. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I am not seeking to draw battle lines or attack our culture. That's not what I'm after here. This is a peculiar text to us when we read that with our modern ears. What I want to do is say, what does the Word of God say and how do we apply it? But I want to be honest and say, that seems odd. That feels odd. If any congressman stands up in, on the Congress floor tomorrow and reads that, which by the way I think would be inappropriate, but we'll get to that in a second, and reads that, he will be on the front page of the news very shortly after it leaves his lips. I promise you. Right? That's where it is. And how odd this sounds really matters where you grew up. So our friends to the east who grew up in the east in India, this is not going to be that far-fetched to them in their culture. But for us in our culture, this is going to feel a bit far-fetched. And how far-fetched really matters about when you were born. Now, it's going to seem somewhat to all of us, but if you were born, say, after the year 1970 especially, then you have not just been somewhat influenced by modern feminism, you've been heavily influenced by modern feminism. And if you think you haven't, you are mistaken and probably moving towards craziness. You have been influenced. The modern feminist movement... Uh, and we'll look at it in a second, there's four major trends, four major events. In the year 1920, it's not even a hundred years old that the first victory, the major victory of the modern feminist movement hit. And that's when the 19th Amendment of the United States Constitution allowed that women can vote. And then another major mile point comes 40 years later in 1960 when the FDA approved oral contraceptive, contraceptive or the... Uh, or commonly known as the birth control pill or just the pill. And then in 1972, as far as the American feminist movement is going, another major victory comes with something called Title IX. And Title IX basically said for any co-education, there has to be equal participation and funding. And then in 1973 came the abominable, horrific court case known as Roe v. Wade that legalized murdering infants in the safest place God ever ordained for them, their mother's womb. Now, it would be irresponsible of me to try to, in one fell swoop, just deal with the modern uh, feminist movement. It would really be irresponsible. I think there are a couple of brief things to say, though, that at least can point us in the right direction where our discussion should go. There are some things about the modern feminist movement that we as Christians should stand up and applaud. For example, the 19th Amendment that came in 1920 that women were given the right to vote. We stand up and applaud that. There are some horrific things about the feminist movement, such as Roe v. Wade, that we do not applaud and we call an abomination before God. So how do you draw the line? it actually, I don't think, is that complex. Where we can applaud the modern American feminist movement is any place that the movement helped us as Christians say women are equal in value with men. 
Let me say it again. We can stand up and applaud loudly, biblically, any place that the American feminist movement helped us as, the, as Christians stand up and say, men and women are equal in value. We can do that because the first chapter of the Bible stands up and applauds that. As God makes man and women and man and woman in His image, both of them. They both have equal value. Yet there is one major error of the feminist movement. There is one major flaw. And that is the insistence that equality in value means no distinction in role. So a major tenet of feminism was that if men and women are equal in value, there must be no difference between them in role. That's grossly flawed. It's a major assumption of the movement and it is grossly flawed. And if we accept it, then we have to do something like just all out reject texts like this or act very awkward in the way we try to reinterpret them to fit into that assumption. That's not a biblical assumption. But I'll even go further. It's not even it's not just a biblical assumption. It's not even an assumption that we use on a daily basis. Let me give you an example. Let's say just pretend that I'm on my way home today and somehow break a traffic law. And I get pulled over by a police officer. I pull over. Now, me pulling over is the first step of submission, right? You've got blue lights, I don't. I'm pulling over, right? That's a step of submission. And I would hope, just like all of you all, that I would be respectful and I would listen to what this police officer has to say. Why? Because he has authority given to him by the people and I don't have that authority. And I would listen. I would respect his authority. Going back up to the first part of this chapter, but we don't have time for all that. I would respect his authority and, and I would do as, as I was told. Now, I, would, I don't think that's a crazy notion. Unfortunately, for some folks in our culture, that has become crazy, but that's another day. That's not a crazy notion. That's something we all can agree upon. That's the way we should act. But notice that in acting this way, I'm not saying that this police officer has any, is any more valuable in the eyes of God than I am. Gosh, no. I'm saying he has a different role than I do. And I respect his role, and therefore I will submit. That's just a general assumption. And I laugh at anybody who doesn't say, who doesn't agree with this. I want to say, how do you have a job? Because you got to answer to somebody. And when they tell you to do something, you got to listen sometimes. And if you don't, then you're going to go without food, right? That's just the way it is. The assumption is flawed. At the very core of it, it's flawed. And we cannot bring it in to the text. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Since the time these words were penned 20 centuries ago, they have been debated. And they have uh, caused many problems. Many empires, philosophies, revolutions, and religions and movements have come and gone, and many of them have not liked Paul's words here. Now we read these words and our modern ears perk up. 
But rest assured that when Paul wrote these words, it caused one big stir. Here's where it gets interesting. We hear the word, this verse and we find it hard to swallow given that it says that women are to learn quietly and with all submissiveness. But when Paul penned these words, his culture found it hard to swallow because Paul said that women are allowed to learn. That was a crazy notion. That they had no concept for. What do you mean women are, are to learn? Now, learn? Jesus was a radical when it comes to how women should be treated. Jesus, you remember in, 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 in chapter 4, John meets a Samaritan woman at the well and he treats her with so much respect and dignity, probably leads to her salvation. And no other man would have even looked her in the eye. And I am not over exaggerating. Jesus heals women who nobody would go near and He dares to even touch them to heal them. In Jesus' circle, He is consistently followed by a group of women and Jesus takes the time to sit down in Luke chapter 10 and teach them. Make disciples of them. And in the resurrection, who's the first person who Jesus comes before and shows Himself. A woman. Folks, that makes no sense in that culture. And Jesus dares to utter the words in Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples. And it doesn't say just men. And all of a sudden, a movement started with Christianity that was unheard of. Men were discipling women and teaching them the Word. Timothy knows this because Timothy's grandmother, you'll see this in 1 Timothy chapter 2, his grandmother and his mother are the ones who actually taught him the faith. So, in a culture where the Pharisees' daily prayer was, I thank God that I'm neither a Gentile nor what? A woman. That was a daily prayer. It's a day, it is in the Jewish daily prayer. There's a section for the men. Every day they pray to God. I thank God I'm not, I was not born a woman. That's just part of it. And Paul dares to pin the words, let a woman learn. What is he thinking? I find this really helpful. I find it helpful because it tells me that the Word of God does not change even though cultures around it are in constant flux. So the question is, what does God have to say about it? And let's use that to help us determine how we think about it. So when Paul says here, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, we do well to listen. We do well to let women learn and we do well to ask that women learn in a state of submissiveness. But what does that mean? I'm so thankful that Paul is so precise. Go to verse 12. He perfectly defines this. Because you can sit around all day and go, well, what does that mean? So quietly, with all submissiveness. Here he goes. You get two parallels. 
And do not permit a woman to teach. That would be the learning quietly part. Or to exercise authority over a man, that would be the submissiveness part. There's a direct parallel between 11, verse 11 and verse 12. When he says that there's to learn quietly, he's saying they are to learn, but do not permit a, a woman to teach a man. That's it. It's right there in verse 12. And then the submissiveness part is there in verse 11, and it's explained in verse 12. They're not supposed to have authority over men in the church. I don't know how, it's, how this is misunderstood. I honestly don't. I've read argument after argument, and the only way you can get to where they go is to bring in an assumption that is not there in the Word of God. To assume there's no way Paul could be saying this. And I say, no, he is saying that. And we should listen to it. And I thank God that the people then listened to Paul when he said, let them learn. So he says here, he's exceptionally clear, women are fully and completely equal with men in value, but in the church they have a different role. This shouldn't surprise us. The same holds true in one other institution. That's called the institution of what? Marriage, a God-given institution. And in Ephesians 5, it says, verse 22, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Anytime you submit in any way, you're always submitting as a believer to the Lord. By the way, I think that's true when the, when the police officer pulls me over. If my mind can't go there, at least later as I think about it, then I need to grow as a Christian. When I pull over for a police officer... I am submitting unto the Lord because I believe that police officer would not be standing in position of authority if God didn't let him. In fact, the truth is, I believe he couldn't breathe another breath if God didn't let, let him because I couldn't breathe another breath unless God let me, right? Every time we submit, we submit unto the Lord. Why submit to your husbands as to the Lord? Verse 23, For the husband's ahead of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its Savior. Paul goes on to explain that, that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. It's not by chance that the only two institutions that God ordains this role distinction to be present is marriage in the church. Marriage is the institution by which should be the only institution from which children come into the world. So it's the institution God ordained for the creation of mankind. Marriage. Would it be shocking to us that there would be a similar role distinction in the church when the church is the only institution that God has ordained to save people from the world? Marriage is the institution He uses to get us into the world. Church is the institution He uses to save us from the world. And it makes sense that, by the way, they're the only two institutions that have direct connections to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in Acts, when he's on the Damascus road and the Lord shines himself, the, the, the vision says, "Why, uh, Paul, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting who? The church? Those Christians? No, he says what? Me. The Lord Himself, Jesus Christ, identifies Himself with the church. And Ephesians 5 is so important. We're not going to spend a lot of time there, I promise. But it's so important because the reason that marriage matters is because it's a picture of Jesus' love for who? The church. A couple of things he's not saying that could really be misunderstood. And this 
If there are folks on the left, I hate to use those terms, but I think it at least helps you understand. There are folks on the left who say this has nothing to do with what it really sounds like. There are as many crazies on the right who say this says things it never says. And I want to make sure that we are clear that it does not say that. First, he is not saying that a woman must not have authority in any organization. It's the church. So it makes good sense that women should be leaders in businesses, in politics, and in education, in other organizations. And we as men are to submit to them in those organizations as to God. Plain and simple. He's talking here about the church. Second, and on a similar line, this is not a carte blanche statement, blanket statement. Paul is not saying that all women are to submit to all men. He is saying that a wife is to submit to who? A husband. So, women are not asked to submit to all men. They are supposed to submit to their husband. So if a man reads this and thinks that this is some type of rights grab or power grab for him over all men, he is dead wrong in abusing the Word of God. The Scriptures never command subjection outside of a relationship. And they never command subjection, hear this, short of protection. They never command subjection short of protection. And the last thing, Paul is not saying that women do not have a teaching role in the church. That's not what he's saying. They're not to teach men is what he's saying. There's a lot of places for them to teach. They can certainly teach other women. They can certainly teach children. They can even work with their husbands in discipling Young men, we see this with Apollos and Aquila and Priscilla in Acts chapter 18. So there are ways that they can serve. They just are not supposed to teach men or have authority over men. And while we're on cautions, let me caution this. Be careful with the why question. That is, it's real easy for us to look at this and say, why did God make it this way and want to answer it? But once we start, it gets real fuzzy quick. So I've heard people try to explain this and say, well, women can't handle the pressures that men can handle in leadership in the church and therefore that's why God has said this. Oh, come on. Uh, you don't have an understanding of how different, different women are and different men are. Come on. He's not saying that. Here's the deal. He just doesn't answer that question. He's going to go on to elaborate what he means by it, but he's not going to answer the question in what follows, the why question. I think a helpful place, an analogy is helpful, and I can use Joshua chapter 5. You don't have to turn there, just listen to this. There, Joshua chapter 5, by this time they're starting to go in and make some conquering, do some conquering in the land. And this is a text in the Scriptures. Now just... Stop for a second that you're at church and just remember this actually really happened. This was really a bunch of group of people and somebody had to stand up and, and tell the people this. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites were by the sea, I heard that the Lord had, and, and they'd heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they crossed over. Their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. In other words, all the other kings were scared to death. These people are going to knock me out. At that time, 
Verse 2, And the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel. Now people all the time look at Joshua, and I've heard lots of talks on the incredible leadership that Joshua shows. He's able to get them across into the promised land. He's able to deal with Jericho. you got the whole sun standing still. you got all these kings that he wipes out. I'm going to tell you what, none of them mean anything to me about his leadership compared to Joshua chapter 5. In Joshua chapter 5, before the days of modern anesthetics, or let's even go with sharp instruments, Joshua stood up before a bunch of men, adult men, and said, God said we should all be circumcised. Now, come on! I want that in a leadership talk. You explain how you convince that one? Answer is you don't, God does. Now, you've got to imagine that somewhere in the crowd, there's a gentleman going. Why? (laughs) Joshua, I heard that question because God said so. Okay, let's do it. Why? What is he going to do? Explain how this minor surgery is going to lead them to be better fighters? Come on. There's no reason. Except God said, do it. And therefore, do it. And when it comes to the role distinction between men and women in marriage and in the church, I just don't let myself get into the silly question of why. Except to go, I don't know. God said, do it. And therefore, I'm going to do it. Maybe later it will make sense. But for now, we're going to do it. Why? Because God said, do it. And now, I wanted to go with that, lead with that, before we get into verse 13, because I do not want us to misunderstand verse 13 and 14. This is is not Paul's attempt to explain why. This is his attempt to uh, ground what he's already telling them to do. It's his attempt to elaborate on what they're to do and how they're to to understand it. Verse 13, For Adam was formed first, then Eve... And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Paul explains, as he's explaining what's going on here, he explains that Adam was formed first by God. So Adam is in subjection to God. Every man is subject to God. Every man is subject to God. But God created Eve for Adam. And so Eve was to be submissive to her husband. So why does Paul go with where he's going here about saying, well, Adam was formed first, then Eve. Well, I think it's that to make that point. God first made Adam, but remember, God made Adam. And also remember, but there's a relationship. He made Eve for Adam, and she's supposed to be subjected to him. Why does he say that Adam wasn't deceived? Because I look at it and go, I'm pretty sure he was. I'm pretty sure he was there, and I'm pretty sure he bit the apple. Right? Or the tomato, in my interpretation. It just says fruit. It's got to be a tomato. It's a wicked fruit. Anyway, um, but that's that's an argument for another day. There's a good argument there. You just wait. There's a really good argument. Stay away from tomatoes. Um, But anyway, um, I'm really beside the point here. Why does he say that Adam wasn't deceived? I'm pretty sure he was deceived. Because he's making the point. 
It wasn't Adam who the serpent talked to first. It was who? Eve. Before the conversation even took place, there was trouble. That's the point. She should have never had the conversation. She should have said, you're talking to the wrong person. I'm not the spiritual head of this household. Adam is. Talk to him. That's what I think he's after. And he says that, but the woman was deceived. And she became the transgressor. And obviously we know what happened because of that. He, he's not looking. At, he's not saying that a man is any less deceivable than a woman. Good gracious! You women already know that. No, he's saying the problem was with a role distinction, even in the garden. And let me just tell you, this isn't a sermon about marriage. But if we evangelical conservatives don't stop and ask some serious questions about how we really believe this to be and take this idea serious and don't just give it a passing glance, we are going to continue to have very misunderstood, confused marriages. It's all another point for another day. But we as a church had better heed the advice. He says, I don't want a woman teaching and I don't want a woman exercising authority. That's not the role I intended. And it causes a lot of havoc when it happens. In fact, all of mankind's sin started there. Oh. And then there's verse 15. <laughs> mm. Every week I think I've hit the tops of my love for the Word of God with every sermon I preach. And every week, there's a verse that just jumps out and you go, unreal. Folks, verse 15 gets the unreal category. Listen. And she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in their faith and love and holiness and with self-control. Now, I'm going to be honest. This verse scared me for a long, long time. I'm just going to be honest. This isn't the type of verse, as a contemporary gentleman, you want to be asked to preach. Just going to lay it out there. What in the world is going on? Let me tell you, the Gospel is going on. Paul, it's, you can just imagine as he writes it, he gets through with verse 14 and he, and he realizes what he's just said about the fact that all of, of man's sin began there. And you can see there's a certain sense of, oh no, the women are going to feel this burden. And they're going to hold this burden of all of mankind's sin on them and think that they are less because of this. Whoa. And then you get verse 15. I think there are two things going on and both of them are beautiful. One, so he says she will be saved through childbearing. What does he mean? Well, one thing he means is that yes, the sin of mankind did begin with Eve. 
But God in His gracious mercy set it up that every man would have to be born through who? A woman. (laughs) It really deals with the playground argument, right? Well, we don't need women, right? As the boys say to the girls, we don't need girls. And the girls have an incredible comeback that every guy is still trying to figure out what to say to. Pretty sure your mama got you here. What do you say to that? You don't have anything to say to that. If it weren't for your mama, you wouldn't be here, right? How incredible. That even though Eve would fall, God would make it so that every creature would spend nine months growing in her womb. She would be go through horrific pains in childbirth and be able to nurse that child to life. Because if I didn't believe that infants were helpless before, now that I've been through an infant, let me say, helpless. Right? How awesome. It takes every... In case any man wants to stand up and say, look what the women cost us. God has made it where the answer is, yeah, life. But there's something else beautiful here. It says that they're going to be saved. I think it's very interesting that in the garden, it would be Eve that will bear some responsibility for the fall of the first Adam. That's just the way it is. She has some responsibility to bear for the fall of the first Adam. How is it that when God decides to bring in the second Adam into the world, how is it He decides to bring him in? through the birth of Jesus by a woman. In Genesis chapter 3, we get the very first telling of the Gospel right there in chapter 3. In verse 15, we're already told, yes, you will crush... uh, he He will bruise your heel. Talking about the seed of woman. Satan will bruise his heel. But your seed will do what? He'll crush his head. In other words, one day, already in the garden, when he's already telling Eve all the consequences, he looks at her and says, one day, there's coming one who you will give birth to as a woman who will defang that serpent who just lied to you. And that one is who? Jesus Christ. You'll be saved. And so what do you do? Woman, compared to that, you continue in faith, you continue in love, you continue in holiness, and you continue in self-control. That's how. Continue in faith, continue in love, continue in holiness, and continue with self-control. Folks, right there is the gospel. It doesn't matter if you're a man. It doesn't matter if you're a woman. You stand condemned before God. Every one of us does. Because every one of us has said yes to the serpent many, many times. And yet, the promise for us is the same promise it was for Eve in the garden. It's Jesus Christ. Let me also put it to you this way. If you feel the burden, and men, we went right past dealing with a lot of time on us because we had so much to cover in the rest. 
What Paul says there is an incredible burden to men. You show up every week with prayerfulness, purity, love, and peacefulness. I don't know about you, but I hear that and go, I cannot do that. It won't happen. And women, he's telling you that you're supposed to joyfully live in submission and quietness and public worship and willingness to live this way. I don't know, but I'm imagining there's a certain tinge of that's going to be really hard. My answer is, men, you're going to mess it up. We're going to mess it up. Women, you're going to mess it up. His grace is sufficient for all of our weakness. He will carry us through. Our hope is not in, hey, we've heard it, now we've got to do it. Our hope is in Christ and in Christ alone. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank You for these very difficult words. You know how I have struggled, and Lord, I'm sure there are many things I would probably like to say differently. But Lord, I thank You that I don't bank on my presentation. I do. I bank very much on the fact that Your Word is true, and it's eternal, and it's unchanging. And inasmuch as we heed it, we have life. So Father, I pray... Pray for us as a church that we would be willing to listen to the Word of God even when it's hard. I pray, God, for us as a people that we would consider it and consider it deeply. And then, God, I pray that by Your Spirit You would help us, Father, to carry it out. Lord, that You would give us the grace and the mercy that we need to not just do this in action, but Lord, far, far more difficult to do it in attitude and in spirit. So Father, as we now spend a few moments reflecting, I pray that You'd use this to continue to teach our hearts. Lord, convict us. Lord, help us to commit our ways to You. We ask all these things to You, our Father. Amen.